This is the University Seventh-day Adventist Church in the sunny Orlando, Florida. We are glad that you are listening to our weekly podcast. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and challenged by our message today, and may God lead you in the next step of your growth in Him. Here is our future sermon. Are we live and good? Are you alive and good? How's that? You know, we're going to have some fun today. I want to tell you why. Because I believe God's going to show up today, and He's going to do it through His Word, and um, perhaps reveal some things that maybe we've studied, but maybe we're going to see them in a new light. I'm trusting God's Holy Spirit for that. Let me draw back on this just a moment. I want to thank Brother Edwards for, for, and the board for working together. It was a pleasure to come over and to uh, pray together about the next steps. I learned last week that um, our ministerial department director is getting this close to telling me to make a phone call to the, your prospective pastor. So all the details aren't worked out yet, but we're getting close. Okay, so this is good. I'm, I'm glad to, uh, you know, to tell you that today. But in any case, um, I'm thankful for Jesus today because I believe his promise that he's coming soon. And soon, of course, means uh, when he decides it's time, along with the Father, right? Which means I have a responsibility, and that is to look for it. And, and to live in anticipation of it. In fact, that's the title of our message today. It's anticipating Christ's coming. Are you anticipating Jesus coming? And if you are anticipating Jesus coming, what difference does that make in your life? By God's grace, it's challenging us day by day to be thinking about the coming of Jesus and how my life is going to be ordered to prepare for that day. Jesus has a message for us in his word that he's coming back again. It's a message that we might know him, that we might believe in him, that we might follow him, that we might become like him, and that we might abide in him, so that when he does come, we'll see him as he is, and we'll have a kind of renewed joy, and because we'll expect him, and we will see him, and he'll see us, and we'll love him, and we'll be redeemed forever. I look forward to that day. While we anticipate the coming of Jesus, I believe that the light of God is going to get brighter. I also believe that the darkness of this world will become more exposed. Do you think? Sometimes I wonder if the Holy Spirit is being withdrawn in places of our world today. As we come closer to the day of God, I believe that the mercy of God will be more known and that evil and sin will be more revealed but soon Jesus will come and he will take us home. He'll put an end to sin. He'll come with resurrection power. He will come to judge the wicked. He will restore peace and holiness. And he will establish again the universe with its righteousness and goodness. The coming of Jesus is so precious. I want to share with you a promise. If you know it, perhaps you'd like to say it with me. Jesus put it this way. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Keep going. And where I am there, you may be also. This precious promise of Jesus was given just a few days. In fact, it was given the night that he was arrested. But it's important for us to take a look at the backstory that led up to that promise. You see, it was just a few days before this, the disciples and Jesus had been in, Jeru I'm sorry, in Jericho. 
They had been traveling in the direction of Jerusalem. They had been doing ministry along the way. And they came through Jericho and, and they finished up some very important ministry there. And then Jesus said to his disciples, let us now go to Jerusalem. Those were words that the disciples did not want to hear at such a time. They didn't want to hear those words because it was fearful to go to Jerusalem. The word on the street, if you will, and all around the leadership of Israel was that Jesus was an apostate. And to follow Jesus into Jerusalem would have put all of their lives at certain risk. In fact, when Thomas heard these words, he said, Anyone know? Let us go with him so that we might die with him. They were fearful about going to Jerusalem, and yet they continued to make their way there. And of course, you know the story, when they arrived in Jerusalem... There was a great celebration, wasn't there? It wasn't what they expected. A huge celebration with palm branches and children and men and women running in the streets and throwing their robes down in front of a donkey that he was riding on. And they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was on Sunday morning. It was a huge celebration. But by Tuesday, the, by Tuesday, just a couple days later, everything had changed again. Jesus had gone to the temple and he began to teach and preach again in the temple. And it became very evident that the leaders there were rejecting him. Open your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 23. I want you to join me here in this study. Because in Matthew 23, we see some very painful things that Jesus says to the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin there in those days. In Matthew 23, the mood shifts dramatically. Because as Israel is rejecting its God, Jesus begins to condemn Israel. These are very painful things to read, much less think about and ponder. But judgment was being meted out on Israel's leaders at that time. I want you to follow with me. We're going to skim this very quickly. But look with me in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus breaks into a, into a preaching tone, if you will, condemning the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 13, he said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces, and you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. In verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but if you swear by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. What foolishness! Verse 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, and hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, and, and, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. And Jesus condemned their unrighteousness and their pretensions to be righteous. And he left the temple that day. It was a fearful thing for those disciples that followed him to see the contrast between Sunday morning and Tuesday afternoon. They must have been in fear again that surely they would be arrested soon. Well, I want you to follow with me carefully because what happens next is quite amazing. We come to the end of chapter 23 where, Jerusalem, or where Jesus cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I would have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you that you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now watch what happens next. Jesus left the temple 
This is chapter 24. Jesus left the temple, and when his disciples came to him to call, watch what they, they're leaving the temple under this mood, that's heavy mood of condemnation. And his disciples come to him and say, do you see all the, he said, they drew his attention to look at all the, the marble and the stones and the gold and the, and the beauty of the temple. Jesus, check out this, all these buildings. Now sometimes I know that I have said some stupid things at the wrong time. But I'm beginning to wonder about the disciples here at this point. They were in such a conflict, they didn't know what to say. And as they're leaving the temple, they just well, Jesus, take a look at this beautiful temple. I mean, this doesn't belong in this conversation at all. But as they left the temple, watch what Jesus says in verse 2. He said, do you see all these things? He asked, I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Unimaginable that they would hear these words. In Mark's gospel, it's interesting how they put it. The disciples said, Jesus, look, teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. And he said, it's all going to come down. It's like, don't you get it? It's all going to end. And they were completely upside down in their hearts and their thinking. But again, I want you to see what happens next. Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. You see, there was probably a lot of disciples following Jesus at this point. But his closest disciples came to him and they said, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They asked two questions, didn't they? Did you catch that? They asked two questions. When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? You see, they could not imagine that the destruction of the temple uh, would be anything other than the end of the world. It had to be the end of the age. The temple, if it's torn down, surely all things are wrapped up and done. But you and I know that the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, right? And the temple was destroyed, but the work of God's people goes on God has another plan, but they don't understand that. And so Jesus begins to answer their question, which were two questions, not one. Because the, the, the destruction of the temple and the end of the age will be two very different things. But here's where you and I must become wise students of God's word. Because when Jesus answers the question, he answers them both at the same time in chapter 24. This is why discernment of God's word is so precious and very important for you and I. The Seventh-day Adventist Church has its understanding of eschatology wrapped up in understanding Matthew chapter 24 and Revelation 12, 13, 14. And we understand that God has a purpose and he's going to fulfill his purpose. His word will unfold. Signs will come upon the, on, the, on the world that will reveal his coming. I want you to track with me just for a few minutes. I want to skim chapter 24 with you. They asked that question and Jesus answered and he began his answer by saying, watch out, verse 4, that no one deceives you. It's very important, friends, to be students of the word of God so that we are not deceived. This is of utmost importance. He said, many will come in my name claiming to be Christ. Watch verse 9. And then you will be handed over and persecuted and put to death. Some people have this idea that Jesus will never allow a believer to suffer. Ladies and gentlemen, all you have to do is watch the news. A follower of Jesus, not of our tribe and persuasion, if you will, just had his head removed. And we all saw it if you, if you wanted to. A priest, can you even imagine the destruction that goes on in this world? It hasn't happened here, friends, but Jesus warned that many would be handed over to death. Watch this. 
And many, verse 11, and many false prophets, he warned again there, will appear and deceive many because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will will grow cold. Ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't take much time in front of the media to understand how wickedness is increasing at exponential rates beyond what we can imagine. And the images that we see and the things that we hear are not only repulsive to a holy God, but by his grace it would be repulsive to you and me as well. Oh, God, awaken our hearts. But I want you to see verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached at where? There's a sign of the end. Verse 20. Pray that your flight not be on the Sabbath or in the winter, right? Look at verse 26. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, do not go out. For if... Don't believe it. Exactly. Exactly. Here he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even unto the west, so shall... The coming of the Son of Man be. It will not be a secret. It will be known to all. The whole world will see him come. These are the signs. These are the truths that you and I have understood as we have become followers of Jesus that the Seventh-day Adventist Church uplifts and beholds. May God give us courage to do that. But I want you to see what happens next. In verse 29, after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and heavenly bodies will be shaken. Watch that. Now watch verse 30. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. Now when, when, when was there ever a, to- a time when the stars fell from the heavens? Who knows? Who knows what year that happened? Say again. 1833. You get the prize apple today. <laughs> that is great. 1833. That's exactly right. Would you like to hear a witness from, from someone who was there that day? Frederick Douglass witnessed this event. Anyone heard of that name, Frederick Douglass? Oh, you have. Of course. A statesman, uh, a, um, an abolitionist, an orator, a writer. You know, a man not given to reckless ideas. Okay? He was there and witnessed this. He said, I witnessed this gorgeous spectacle and was awestruck. The air seemed filled with bright descending messengers from the sky. It was about daybreak when I saw this sublime scene. I was not without suggestion that at that moment it might be the harbinger of the coming of the Son of Man. And in my then state of mind, I was prepared to hail him as my friend and deliverer. I had read that the stars shall fall from heaven and they were now falling. How awesome. But ladies and gentlemen, that happened in 1833. And you and I, friends, are living between verse 29 and verse 30 right now. You want to put your little picture right there because you and I are living between verse 29 and verse 30 of chapter 24 of Matthew. That's where we are. It's the next thing that's coming upon the world, is the coming of Jesus. And it begs the question, are you ready to get into the word? Here we go. Are we anticipating the coming of Jesus? And if you are, how are you preparing for the coming of Jesus? I ask you that question because what Jesus does next is teach believers how to prepare. One of the things I believe we may have missed in our eschatology, we've told people that Jesus is coming. We've told them the signs of his coming. We've told them what they must believe and teach about his coming about dates and prophecies, but have we done well at taking Jesus' teaching, what he specifically said in how to prepare? I believe he gives us the answer next. You see, chapter 25 of Matthew, watch this carefully. Matthew chapter 25 is the same 
conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. It's not a separate teaching. You'll notice there's three parables there. But it's not a separate teaching or collection of parables that were thrown into Matthew's discourse. Matthew chapter 25 is the same discussion that he just had about the signs of his coming. Watch this now. Chapter 24 is about the signs of his coming. Chapter 25 is about how to prepare. So are you ready to look at that more closely? See, now we're going to dig in. And I, this is going to be a conversation from this point. I'm going to ask you to respond verbally. I want you to raise your hand, if, if you will. I'd like to recognize you because I want to have this conversation with you about these three parables. I'll try to go quickly. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like, what's your Bible say? Ten virgins. Why are they called virgins? When Jesus teaches, he uses words to elicit understanding. Why does he use the word virgins? A purity. And how many of them are pure? All ten. All ten, right? There are ten virgins. Thank you. That's a very, yes, very important distinction. All ten were considered pure virgins. All right? This is very important. In other words, they were all believers. This is not a parable about the saved and the unsaved. This is a parable about God's people. Those who have professed the name of Jesus. Those who have claimed the grace of God and received it. Okay, are we together? Right out of the parable, we need to understand that this is Jesus talking to the church. He's not condemning or any, anyone else. He's talking to believers. That's you and me, right? So let's move forward. At that time, the kingdom of heaven was like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? Why did they bring lamps? Because it was nighttime. <laughs> okay. Why nighttime? What, what does, that, does that speak to us? Okay. Okay, the bridegroom is going to come during a time of great darkness. And now what is the significance of the lamp? The word of God. Do we have a scripture to back that up? Psalm 105, verse 5. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Yes. Okay, so we're pulling together some symbols of God's word here. Five of them were... Oh, oh. <laughs> this is hard to hear, isn't it? It's hard to read those words. Five of the believers were foolish, it said, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take... Now, we've studied these things together before, haven't we? Right? And the oil could mean possibly what? The Holy Spirit of God. Where else do we see oil in the Bible used? We see it used in the anointing of God's prophets, poured upon Aaron, poured upon David, etc. Where else have we seen, do we see oil in the Scriptures? How about in the great tabernacle, the seven-branch candlestick, the flame of which was never to go out. In all of their years of travel, it was never to go out. It was to be kept lit, symbolizing what? The presence of God in his people, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of his people. And five had extra oil. How do you have extra oil? That's a, that's a thought. And how do you not have oil? Let's follow through with the parable. I'm going to go quickly. The wise, however, took oil in their jars with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. And they all became, oh my, they, they all, how many? All, only the foolish slept? Lord help us. They all fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. They were expecting them to be lit. They trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil. 
our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. Can you buy this kind of oil, church? Can you buy the Holy Spirit? Can someone give the Holy Spirit to someone else? The Holy Spirit, if you will, and the experience of the transformed life is not something that can be given to someone else. But they went their way to buy oil. Now, it's a sad, incredibly amazing and painful thing, or will be, when, when, when the five foolish virgins awaken to realize that they have squandered the opportunity to walk, to walk with God and to know His love for them. And the Bible says the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Okay, here comes, the, here comes the trick question. I'm telling you right in advance. Why were the foolish virgins not permitted to go into the wedding? Think carefully. The answer is in the text. Why were they not permitted? We, be careful. Oh, yes, the door was closed. But what was the reason? The Bible says there was a reason why they were not permitted. What does Jesus say is the reason I, I'm not sure if I heard it yet I st- I st- it's right there somebody tell me what it is this is very important we find it you gotta look deeper sister you gotta look deeper somebody raise a hand so I can recognize you there it is they came to the door they knocked on the door the bridegroom opened the door they said let us in let us in you know us we know you and the bridegroom says I never depart from me I Never knew you. I do not know you. Not never. I, I do not know you. He used to know them. There was a time when they were pure walking with God. They used to know him. But the oil was running out. The oil of the Holy Spirit in the life of the person was running out. And we could spend a lot of time, I suppose, on that one point. But it's tragic. Now, here's where I want to make a shift here in what we're doing, okay? It's because, and I learned this principle probably 35 years ago. I was dating my wife, Carolyn, and we were attending a series of, not attending by physical, but by attending by listening to some cassette tapes. Remember those? <laughs> some cassette tapes from a series of meetings conducted by uh, C.D. Brooks in Washington, D.C. Anyone heard of C.D. Brooks? Okay, we got some believers here. <laughs> I could quote him left and right. I uh, just love his preaching. I listened to C.D. Brooks while I was beginning to follow Jesus in my early 20s. And I was also listening to another teacher by the name of Leslie Harding. Maybe some of you have heard of him. Uh, Leslie Harding had an interesting teaching. He was, I was listening to these cassette tapes on the book of Daniel. And Leslie Harding said that there, in the book of Daniel, there are seven stories there. And in the book of Daniel, there's also seven prophecies. And, 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 of course, we have much of our theology as a church rooted in those prophecies, don't we? In fact, I saw the chart on your pastor's wall in here of the 2300 days drawn from that chapter 8 and 9. And Leslie Harding said this. He said, the seven stories in the book of Daniel are written there so that you will know how to live in the time of the fulfillment of the prophecies. Does this make sense? In other words, there's going to come a time when like chapter 3 in Daniel, 
when they are put before an image to bow down and worship, how are God's people to live? To live honoring God and they will not worship the image or his be- and the beast. You see, that's the story. The prophecy comes later. Or, or even the chapter 2. Read chapter 2 in the prophecies of all of the, of the kingdoms of the world. How are we supposed to live in the time of the fulfillment of the kingdoms of this world? As one who will not bow down to an image. Do you see the point? Okay, this idea was birthed from Leslie Harding in my heart 35 years ago. And it finally took root some time ago when I realized that Jesus was doing the exact same thing right here in Matthew. Because the parables, the parables in chapter 25... Our Jesus is teaching on how to live during the fulfillment of the prophecies of chapter 24. Are we together now? See the point? Now let's bring it home. When we look at the parable of the virgin, the ten virgins, what is the lesson? What is the lesson of those living in the time of the fulfillment of prophecies? Got to get to know the bridegroom. The first thing Jesus is telling us to do is to get to know the bridegroom. As you get to know the bridegroom, guess what's going to happen? Your well of oil, if you will, is going to fill up, right? Because the more you know the bridegroom, the more you're going to experience transformation. The more you experience transformation, the more the Holy Spirit's going to be in your life. And your, and your whole lamp and all the jars are going to be filled with it. It's going to be spilling over into somebody else's life. And so the first thing Jesus is saying to us in these two chapters is, okay, he came, chapter 24, he comes down to tell us the signs and what's going to happen in the end of the world. And then he says, and this is how you prepare. And the very first thing you need to do The very first thing is get to know the bridegroom. A lot of people are busy doing all kinds of things in this life, in this world, Christians and otherwise, but they may not be knowing Jesus the way they need to. I want to see if we can wrap up in a few minutes, but I want to have some fun with you. You know, I came with a whole sandwich. Do you want a half a sandwich or do you want the whole thing? (laughs) You want the whole thing? I'll give you meat and potatoes too. Here's Here's what I'd like to do next. I would like this half of the church to look at the next parable. Okay, in this half, I want to look at the third parable. I would like you to get with a friend, and if you don't have a friend, I want you to introduce yourself to somebody sitting next to you, and I'd like for you to read together quietly the next parable here that begins in verse 14, and read that on through about verse 30. And I want you to look for the highlight of in that, in that parable, okay? We'll come back to you in a moment. Uh, yeah, chapter 25, verse, am I doing that? Chapter 25, 14 to 30. Okay, now I want you folks to look at the next parable, parable of the sheep and the goats. That begins in verse 31 to the end of the chapter. I'm going to give you about five minutes, compare notes, look for the highlights, and we'll come back together in just a moment. All right? Yes, question. I, you know what? I'll get one. I'll need this one, but I'll get you one. We need a Bible for a sister over here. Where's, do we have a Bible in here? Okay. Let's say thank you for the brother giving the Bible to the sister. <laughs> Can you find Matthew? Matthew, go back over here. 25. Matthew 25. Okay. A couple of key phrases I want to zoom in on here so that we know that Jesus is in the same context as he was in Matthew chapter 24. Notice chapter 25, first three words. What are they? Kingdom of heaven shall be, or if you're reading an NIV, it's at that time, right? At, yes, I want you to look at the next parable, actually, verse 14. Okay? Verse 14, what are the first three? There it is. There it is again. Okay, so we have a parable beginning there. If you're looking at an NIV, maybe someone has that. It's interesting how it begins there. At that time, verse 1, Jesus said, and then at verse 14, again, it will be like a a man coming, or 
going into a far country. Point being is Jesus is telling us it's going to be like this when he comes again. That's his point. So let's look. What's this parable about? The talents. What are the talents? Okay. In, in the context of the parable, it's about money. Okay, let, let's stick there for just a minute. We'll come to that in just a moment. So it's about money. And one of the three men got how much? Got five talents. That's a whole lot of money, incidentally. A whole lot of money. Um, anyway, they got five talents, and one got how many? Two, and one got one. And why did one, why, why difference? Why weren't they all treated equal now? Come on. Why were they not treated equal and everybody got five or everybody got three? What? Oh, well, now, wait a second now. We'll come over here. <laughs> Why, why were they treated differently? Ah, they were given an amount according to their ability to manage it. Now, does that speak about the individual or does that speak about the wisdom of the one who's lending the money? Exactly. Which also tells us that the one giving the money did not place expectations upon the, the same expectations on each one, Right? So the one that had a lot of skills and abilities and so forth and knew he could handle the money well was given a lot of money to deal with. And the other, I think I'm that one, or maybe the two. <laughs> but in any case, then there's the one with two and one with one. Why did the one, however, how did he behave? What, was, he, was he appreciative of the generosity of the... Ah, what, what was his testimony? What did he say? He says he's a hard man. Now, based on what we read, do you think he's a hard man? I think he's a very equitable person. You know, very good and generous person. So what does this tell us about the knowledge of the one, the man who gave him all this wealth? He didn't know him, right? That sounds like the first parable, doesn't it? He didn't, he didn't know him. Wow. Could it safely be said that the call of Jesus in this parable, again, is to get to know get to know God. It's like he's repeating the concept here. Oh, yes. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And there's something wrong in his heart. And of course, we could take time to diagnose that, but perhaps we'll move on. Brother, you brought up a point that these talents could also be considered what? Gifts. Now, is it, is it a stretch to say that these would be spiritual gifts? It, it would be that they're spiritual gifts. And how are those spiritual gifts to be used? That, to utilize them. Can we drill right into the point because of our time is probably getting short? Is it reasonable that Jesus is saying to us, as you anticipate the coming of Jesus, take an inventory on your gifts and your skills and your abilities and your resources and your wealth and everything that you have because everything that we have is given from where? I'm reminded of the scripture in Deuteronomy. It says, uh, 817, God gives the power to gain wealth. Ephesians 4 is about spiritual gifts and Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, all about the spiritual gifts that God gives to people. And it's like he's saying to us, take inventory on your wealth and resources and giftedness and do what with it? Invest it, right? Invest it in the kingdom of God. Many are investing in all kinds of things today. Jesus gets right to the point elsewhere in the Gospels when he said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And so in the first parable... Jesus is saying to us, get to know the bridegroom. So vital. In the second parable, he's saying to us, take inventory on your gifts, skills, abilities, wealth, resources, all that you have, and dedicate it to God's purpose and invest it in his, in his kingdom, in the kingdom of God. Is that, is that good? You have done awesome, and you folks have been very patient. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Let's go to the next parable. 
parable of the sheep and the goats. And who are the sheep and who are the goats? Uh-oh, now, wait a second. <laughs> the sheep are God's people, all right? Okay, the righteous and the unrighteous are being contrasted, compared and contrasted. Now, Dr. Edwards, that's, a, that's, a, that's an exam thing, right? <laughs> Compare and contrast here. And so we're going to, Jesus compares and contrasts the righteous and the unrighteous. So when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory, verse 31, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the, excuse me, from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and then he'll say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the opposite is true for those who did not do those things. You've read the parable. Yes, sir. The sheep are the doers of his word, and the goats are not. Okay, we're getting right to the application. This is good. <laughs> this is very good. So... How would you describe these sheep? What are they doing? What are they doing with their resources? Oh, okay. And why are they doing it? Because they know the master, right? They know the bridegroom, right? Absolutely. Yes, please. Oh, my goodness. Wow. It's not like you have to try. It's kind of like it's becoming part of who you are. Now, I'm not always there. I want to admit that. Um, but maybe the more I get to know Jesus, the more I become like, like him, the more I think about my resources and gifts and skills and start using them and think, well, you know what, I could do this thing over here and engage in ministry. Gives a desire, motivated by love because you get to know the bridegroom. We've got to come back to that all the time. You know, that's the anchor, absolutely. So about these sheep and goats, uh, what is the, um, I mean, what's the painful part of this story? Let's at least name that. Okay. There's, there's, there's judgment. There's righteousness. And there's holiness. Um, the sheep and the goats. Um, um, does a separation take place at the end of time? Yes. I'm glad you picked that up. Did you hear that over here? It's the great shepherd who separates the sheep from the goats, not the sheep <laughs> or the goats. You know, f for what it's worth, folks, we live in a culture today where where the emphasis is on difference. And while there needs to be acknowledgement of all the colors and flavors and wonderful aspects of God's people, we are one in Christ Jesus. We must see ourselves as one in Christ Jesus. That is one of the most unique aspects of the kingdom of God, where there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond or slave. All are one in Christ Jesus. This is our journey. I find that I have to reject the things, the messages that are pummeling our society in how I should think about others. I need to see them as God sees them. They may be far from God. They may be better in, in their walk with God. I need to see them as children of God. And how would he want me to serve them? How could I possibly go into the community and serve somebody if I've already prejudged? I mean, this is horrendous. Personally, I think the enemy has a purpose. But you and I need to rise above that. So when we see, did we miss anything in the parable about the sheep and the goats? Now's your chance. Okay, because I want to wrap up. 
Popular, cult, popular culture, for example, tells us that um, we should distinguish ourselves and there is a such thing as social justice. I believe that. I wonder if we would be better to take a posture of social responsibility for our neighbor. I believe that's what God is saying. Um, I'm reminded of something I read recently from a book called That I May Know Him. About a year ago when I was impressed about this particular message, the heart of this message, I personally wanted to get to know Jesus better. And I've been on a journey since that time, reading a small devotional called That I May Know Him. And I want to share these words from you. Actually, there's a lot I'd love to share from that book, but I'll just read this one thing. With regards to ministry and activity, Christians are not to await their Lord's return in idle expectancy. While waiting and watching, they are to be vigilant in tending their heart, their affections, their own souls by the obedience to the truth, and to earnestly look for opportunity to bless others. It is their privilege not only to look for, but to hasten the coming day of God. One of the divine plans for growth is impartation. The Christian is to gain strength by strengthening others. He that watereth shall be watered also, Proverbs eleven twenty five. This is not merely a promise, it's a divine law, a law by which God designs that streams of benevolence like waters of the great deep shall be kept in constant circulation, continually flowing back to the source. I like the way Jesus said it in Matthew, freely you have received, freely give. And so what does it mean, friends? What does it mean to prepare for Jesus' coming? Get to know the bridegroom. Take inventory in our gifts, resources, skills, and abilities and about doing loving, disinterested service for people around us. Matthew 24 is about signs of the end, but Matthew 25 is about signs of the heart. Matthew 24 is about encouragements and warnings and things coming upon the earth, but Matthew 25 is about encouragements and warnings regarding our faith and our practice. 24 is about the signs of Noah, light and dark, and all the things coming upon the world, but chapter 25 is about signs of devotion, and the inward struggle of faith that we all have. Chapter 24 is about deceptions from many places, and chapter 25 reveals distractions and confusion and clarity about life's purpose. Chapter 24 says that we do not know the day or the hour, but chapter 25 reveals that every day is an opportunity to learn of the bridegroom, invest in what God is doing, and love others by faithful ministry. May God give us wisdom. May he give us discernment. May he give us a heart to know the bridegroom, to invest in our skills, abilities, resources, and find places to serve. You see, here's the deal. Last thing. If we don't know where to serve, if if we're not sure what to do with our skills, abilities, and so forth, the next parable tells us where to start. Find somebody who's hungry, who's thirsty, who's in prison. I mean, it's right there. Jesus is telling us what to do. He's not saying this is the only thing we do. But if you're not sure where to begin or what to do, he's telling us right there in chapter 25. And I'm sure as you engage in ministry like that, he'll give you other assignments too and other gifts and other talents. And it's his job to resource you for God's kingdom. And I thank you for the privilege to open his word with you. You've been great. I love worshiping with you. Praise the Lord.